0: God's wrath against sinful humanity. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that's his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they Claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desire of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie... And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relationship relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. And received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so that they do what ought not be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossip, slanderous, God haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Thank you, Carl.
1: Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, these are hard words uh, about hard things. Uh, they're hard words about us uh, as individuals and as human beings, as humanity. Lord, help us to listen honestly, Uh, and to hear what you have to say, uh, and to receive those words, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. There's no denying, I think, uh, if you look around at the world, that uh, human beings are glorious. Uh, there's glorious aspects to what human beings do and to, and to humanity as a whole, There's kindness and love and generosity, there's beauty in the things that people create, there's athleticism and skill in the things that some people can do, and genius in the things that some people devise. The Bible says that humanity is beautiful and wonderful because we were made in God's image, we were made to reflect God's glory. But as wonderful as, uh, and glorious as human beings can be at times, there's no denying that there's something terribly wrong. Uh, one moment we're showing kindness to each other and the next moment we're seething with bitterness. One moment we're being generous to someone and the next moment we're doing all that we're able to get as much for ourselves as we can. Cutting corners, wasting our uh, employers' time, not paying taxes to support the common good. What's wrong with us? What's wrong with humanity? The popular modern view goes something like this. Society stops us from being who we are. It stops us from being true to ourselves. Uh, and not being true to ourselves and our deepest feelings and desires will destroy us. So, so the most damaging thing that anyone could do is not to live according to their deepest feelings. That's kind of the, the modern evaluation of the human predicament. But is that really the problem? Uh, the suicide rate is rising to epic proportions... People are as disillusioned and depressed as they've ever been. And as a message of liberation to pursue our deepest desires and feelings is pushed more and more, it's done nothing to stop that steady decline. All it's done is fragment society, as of course it inevitably has to. Is that really the problem? The Bible offers a different diagnosis of the human condition and one which I think makes a lot more sense of ourselves, of others, of history and of the world in which we live. If you weren't here last week, we looked at the first part of chapter 1, as Chris said, where Paul talks about the good news of God, the good news which is revealed in Jesus. The good news is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can be right with God. We're we're all in a relationship with God, uh, but... Apart from Jesus, our relationship with God is broken and needs to be fixed. And the good news is that through Jesus, it can be fixed. But now, at the beginning of this section, Paul goes on to talk about the bad news. He says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Although it's a bit of a cliche, what Paul is doing is showing us. Uh, is showing that it's hard for us to understand what's really good about the good news unless we understand what's bad about the bad news. Uh, unless we understand first what the human predicament is. So, suppose for a moment that I uh, come and I say to you, I've got great news for you. Uh, the doctors have found a cure for your disease. And you look at me bewildered and you go, What on earth are you talking about? I didn't even know I was sick unless you understand the blackness or the difficulty, the the seriousness of your condition, the good news of of a remedy is not that good a news. But if before I come and tell you about the cure, if before that you already know that you're sick, that you already know that before the year is out that you're most likely to die, uh, if you've already been fighting the pain of your condition for a number of years, if you've already spent countless hours uh, searching the literature, countless dollars going to doctors, if you've already begun to despair that there was no solution available, if only then I come to you and say, the doctors have found a cure, it's amazing, they can, they can heal you. That totally changes, doesn't it, the way that you think about uh, the good news. It's only when you put white next to black that you really see how dazzling the white is. Uh, and so, in this section, what God is trying to do is show us why we need the good news about Jesus and why the good news about Jesus is our only hope. He's trying to show us that what is fundamentally—he's uh, trying to show us what's fundamentally wrong and what needs fixing. And the problem he says is that God is angry with us the God who made us and the God that we rely on for everything about life and the world, that God is angry with us as human beings like you and me. He's angry because of the way that we've treated him and the way that we continue to treat him. And he's not just sort of angry in general, just kind of a general kind of frustration, but he's angry with us as individuals because as individuals we've mistreated him and mistreat him. And unless something is done about that, then we'll remain estranged from the God that we rely on for life and everything. So why is God angry with us? Well, there's three reasons that Paul identifies. First of all, he says that God is angry because people suppress the truth about him. Verse 18, again, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness they suppress the truth in that verse 19 what may be known about god is plain to them because god has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world god's invisible qualities his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that we uh, so that people are without excuse paul's making a really quite a radic- radical claim He's claiming that God is not unknown or unknowable, but rather that God is clearly seen in the world, in the world that God has made. God's fingerprints are all over the world, that's what he's saying. So we grow up in our society uh, being told that belief in God is irrational and stupid, but what if it isn't? What if belief in God is not only rational, but sensible? Paul is saying that if you look around, the existence of God and the power of God are clear. Wherever you look, he's saying it's not actually hard to see it. We only need to look at the expansiveness of the universe or look at the tiny intricacy of the atom or the subatomic particle. We only need to look at the beauty of the world around us or to look at the dignity of human beings, at the beauty of human relationships, at the beauty of human love, of human kindness, of human concern for the environment. At their best, all those things point to the existence of a loving creator God. After all, which is more sensible to believe that beauty is an accident, to believe that love is nothing more than the inevitable outworking of chemical reactions and learned behaviours, to believe that our concern for the environment, for the weak, for the broken, is the end point of an evolutionary model which thrives on the survival of the fittest and the destruction of the weak, to believe that the grandeur of the universe and the rhythmic patterns of the planets and the stars and the galaxies, that the intricacy of the human body and the organisation of the human cell and the structure of the atom, to believe that all that is just a happy coincidence, Or to believe that it's the plan and purpose of an all-powerful, sovereign, loving, purposeful God. Which is more reasonable to believe? That it's an accident? Or that it's a work of a rational, orderly and beautiful God, the God of the Bible? Uh, And while we might think that science has increasingly made that idea untenable, the Bibles claim untenable. In fact, the opposite is true. Increasingly over the last few decades scientists have realized that our world is remarkably fine-tuned for life and its very existence. It's well known now that uh, and well accepted uh, across the board I should say it's well known well accepted that there are a number of fundamental physical constants that if were if they were slightly different the world wouldn't exist. So take, for instance, two well-known physical forces, the force of gravity uh, and the force of electromagnetism. Physicists have estimated that if the ratios of those forces varied by just one in 10 to the power of 40, that is, one in 10,000 trillion trillion trillion, so if that number varied by that small an amount, then the universe would not exist. That's, to put it bluntly, a, a very small number. <laughs> By way of comparison, uh, it's the same probability as flipping a coin and getting 132 heads in a row, which sounds like, oh yeah, that might happen. <laughs> but if you were to flip one coin every second, to on average, it would take you 172 million, trillion, trillion years before that would happen. And yet, despite that evidence, many scientists opt for what is known as the multiverse hypothesis. Uh, In fact, I suspect there's a documentary coming on this week on ABC about that. Uh, And that is, they think that there must be trillions of other universes just like ours, and ours just happens to be the one in which things worked out. But the number of universes that you need for that, to, for that to eventuate, just for that one number, that one ratio between the gravitational force and the electromagnetic force, the number of universes that you would need on average, just for that one number to work out okay, is by definition one in 10,000 trillion, trillion, trillion other universes. And that number increases exponentially for all the other fine tuned parameters of the universe. You literally need an infinite number of universes to support that hypothesis. Moreover, there's absolutely no evidence that that for that hypothesis, for that idea of a multiverse. And some people think that there is no way that there could ever be evidence for it at all. It's just impossible. It's unknowable. What's the point? The point is this. People are so opposed to the idea of a God that even the leading scientists in our world would prefer to believe in an untestable, unknowable, speculative alternative rather than to believe in the idea of a God. Frankly, which idea requires more faith—to believe in a rational mind, a God who created a world beautiful, structured, orderly—or to believe in extraordinarily vanishingly small probabilities? Which idea is more rational? I, I, it's not—it's not even a sensible question, actually. <laughs> And yet, to even suggest that the that the idea of God is more rational is laughed at. That, that's kind of how blind I think we are as human beings. That's how deeply su- committed we are to suppressing the truth. Do you see? That's actually horrifying. It's like the people who stand up and say, oh, the Holocaust never happened." Well, I can give you the evidence. I can I can introduce you to the people. It never happened. It's a conspiracy. Our propensity for suppressing the truth is incredible. The Bible is saying that knowledge is not just an intellectual category, it's a moral category as well. We think of ourselves as impartial judges, all we need is the facts and we'll make the right call. But Paul says that we reject the truth of God, not because it's illogical, not because we can't see it, not because it's not on display, but because we don't want to believe it. So first of all as human beings apart from God we suppress the truth about God. We don't want to believe it. Second of all as human beings apart from God although we know God we neither glorify him nor thank Him. Verse 21 For although they knew God they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. If I was to ask you to list some sins that kind of make us guilty before God, you'd probably be inclined to list some of the big ones. Murder, stealing, adultery, or something like that. But Paul lists two of maybe the slightest sins, if you like. The sins that we probably wouldn't even think of. Thanklessness and the failure to honour God. Uh, And our natural inclination to those sins might be to sort of say, well, honestly, God, just get over it. You know, I mean, it's only thanklessness. But think about it for a moment. Imagine that there's an orphan who's rescued from a life of poverty by a generous couple and the couple give this child everything that she needs. They give her a home, they love her, they give her beautiful home-cooked meals, they take her on holidays with them, they share their lives, they share themselves with her. They give her everything that she needs. What would you think if she was never grateful? If she never said thank you? If whenever she was out with a friend, she always just made fun of her parents? What would you think if whenever her parents came into the room, she pretended that they weren't there? And if they spoke to her, she never listened and she never said anything back? And if you did have something to say, it was just angry. What would you think? What would the parents think? How would they feel? The reason that God is angry with us is not because there's some set of arbitrary rules that he's kind of drawn up on the whiteboard and... God is some kind of petulant, nitpicking God. The reason that God is angry is personal. It's because he's poured himself out in love to us as as the people that he's made, in the world that he's made, and we reject him, we spit in his face, and we pretend that he doesn't exist. How would that feel if someone did that to you? And those two sins of failing to honour God and failing to thank God lie at the heart of every sin. So, for example, when we abuse other people, we're failing to honour and thank God for the people that he's made. He's created those people. When we steal from other people, either by taking what's theirs or by refusing to share with them the gifts that God has entrusted to us, we fail to honour God for what he's provided to us. God is angry and hurt because he has loved us and we fail to love him. We fail to honour him and thank him as our creator and God and king. And we reject and ignore him instead. So as human beings, we suppress the truth about God, we... Uh, neither glorify God nor thank Him. Third, we exchanged the glory of God for idols. Verse 22: although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. That is, people substituted a real living, breathing God for a fake substitute. So sometimes people suppress the truth in the sense that they're atheists. Uh, and they don't believe that any God exists. Uh, But statistically speaking, actually, atheism is a surprisingly small number of people. Most often, people don't reject God entirely, but they remake him in the image that they think he should have. Uh, So they devote themselves not to the God who's revealed himself in the Bible and in Jesus Christ, uh, but to to Buddha, maybe. Uh, And they serve Buddha's ideas and principles... Uh, Or they recreate God in the image of Vishnu or one of the other Hindu gods and God becomes one of the many gods fighting among themselves for power and control. Or they remake God in the image of Allah. Uh, Actually, Islam is unashamedly uh, a recreation of the God of the Bible. Uh, It's by definition that, actually. More often in our society, we simply remake God in our own image. We think to ourselves, what kind of God would I like to serve? And then we create that God in our minds. We imagine God to be like that. We imagine a God who likes everything that we do, uh, a God who, who does whatever we want and who demands nothing of us. We imagine a God just like us, which actually is the same thing as making ourselves God, We imagine God to be just like us rather than asking, who is the God who is there? And of course, in a pluralistic society, we don't think that that matters very much as long as people believe in some God. After all, the story goes, all the people are grasping onto a different part of the elephant. You know, it's all the one God. It's just people seeing different bits of it. (laughs) But that's like saying, well, it doesn't matter if I know anything about you. Uh, what A husband saying to his wife, it doesn't matter if I know anything about you, uh, as long as I know that you exist. Uh, it doesn't really matter if I have no idea what you're like, uh, or if I pretend that you're completely different to who you really are, as long as we stay married. I don't know much about marriage, I have to confess, but I reckon I know enough to know that if a man said that to his wife, she'd be pretty angry. Uh, and pretty hurt. Imagine if people treated you like that. Well, no, no, no. I don't actually care what you're like. I'm just going to make up what you what you like, and, uh, and, and and what you look like. Um, that's actually that's actually deeply offensive. And yet somehow we go, oh no, 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 no. God, that's, God's okay with that. I wouldn't do it. To, I wouldn't dare do it to anybody else. But but if I do it to God, well, he can just live with it. God's angry with us because we distort who he is and turn him into something else entirely. And no meaningful relationship can function on that basis. So the first part of Romans, uh, this part of Romans 1, speaks about why God's wrath is being revealed against people. But now in the second part, goes on, Paul goes on to show how God's wrath is being revealed already now. And in some ways, it's quite unexpected, but at the same time, it's incredibly just and fitting. The Bible says God reveals his wrath by giving to people exactly what they want. So look at verse 24. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women. And were inflamed with lust for one another. men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. We might think that if God was going to judge someone for their sin in the here and the now, that what He would do is to strike them dead on the spot or something, or uh, to stop them, at the very least, from doing what they were doing. But Paul says, actually, God's response is quite the opposite. God's response to people's sin is not to stop them, but to give them exactly what they want and all the consequences that come along with that. Uh, so, Paul says that sin in itself is destructive because it works against God's plan and purpose for us and for the world. It's like, you know, trying to use a hammer to screw in a screw or something like that. Uh, I guess the screw might eventually go in, but uh, it's not going to turn out well for anybody. Uh, and if it's, an, if it's a nice piece of furniture, it's probably going to not, not going to look that great at the end. And in the same way, sin, that is, working outside of God's plan and purpose for the world is actually naturally destructive. It's destructive in and of itself. Paul here singles out homosexuality, Not because it's more deserving of God's judgment than any other sin, but because it's such a clear example of suppressing the truth and rejecting God's pattern for the world. And because it was pretty commonplace in first century Roman Greece. It was widely accepted. Uh, In fact, in the first century world, one of the highest forms of love, one of the most noble forms of love, was actually pedophilia. It was considered to be the height of the purest form of love. Paul says that homosexuality is a clear example of suppressing the truth and rejecting God's plan and pattern for the world. It's so clear. From the basic anatomy of men and women that sex is designed for one man and one woman. But as human beings, we suppress that truth. And even to say that in our world is a dangerous statement to make. And people are hurt when we pretend that suppressing the truth doesn't matter. Uh, Homosexual sex carries with it very real health risks. Uh, It's more prone, biologically speaking, to the transmission of viruses and by by definition is a more risky behaviour. And male sexual contact, according to the Kirby Institute, continues to account for about 70% of new HIV notifications in Australia every year. That is vastly more than any other category or demographic. That is an absolute tragedy. It's a disgrace. And even though Paul says here that God gives people over to the consequences of what they want, the Bible still makes it clear that God sees that as a tragedy. God sees it as a tragedy that people experience the consequences of their choices. But the issue is not only homosexuality. The evidence is increasing that as a society, as a whole, we're paying the price of sexual liberation in general. Uh, Multiple casual sexual partners among all kinds of people is not only having a health cost with increasing rates of sexually transmitted diseases, but multiple casual sexual partners is also tearing people's lives to pieces. We weren't designed for it, and so when we behave like that, it destroys us. Uh, in a recent book, the American sociologist Lisa Wade, who's not a Christian, uh, just a regular sociologist, she details the terrifying effects of the hookup culture in American colleges. Here are some of the effects of that culture the abuse of women, the inability for people to develop friendships and true love, the loss of romance. Uh, The reduction of people's personalities, the only part of their personality that matters, is hotness. That is, people are one-dimensional views as one-dimensional beings. People are really hurting. Astonishingly, Wade's solution to the damage being done by the rampant sexual culture in American colleges is to demolish the boundaries even more. So people need to be even more free with sex, she argues, rather than less free. I'm not sure you could ask for a better example of what Paul is talking about when he says that although people know God's righteous decree and God's pa- plan and pattern for the world, they not only break it themselves, but they encourage other people to do the same, flying in the face of the evidence. It's, so, it's, it's desperately sad. But we shouldn't think that homosexuality or sexuality in general is the only area which is in which as human beings we suffer the consequences of our rejection of God's purpose for the world. The Bible's indictment is against every human being uh, and against every human sin. In ourselves, apart from the saving work of God in Jesus, we're all locked up in sin which is destroying us. So Paul goes on to list a whole host of ways that that plays out. He says in verse 28, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. So they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. We pay the cost of our greed and the greed of others. The recent global financial crisis uh, made that clear. It was caused by the greed of a few. We pay the price of our envy with a life of bitterness and jealousy. We pay the price of our malice in destroying ourselves and others. We pay the price of our gossip and slander in destroying our relationships with other people. We pay the price of our repudiation of authority in making the lives of our parents or our teachers misery and so making our own lives misery as well. We pay the price of our abuse of drugs and alcohol. Alcohol and drug-related assaults are climbing, as are alcohol and drug-related medical uh, conditions. Of course, all this is just a portent of what is to come in the final judgment. Paul says here in Romans that the final judgment is already being foreshadowed in what God is doing now by giving people exactly what they want and the destructive consequences that come with that. Well, it's a sobering chapter, really, isn't it? It's sobering, though, because it's such an accurate depiction of the world in which we live and the sad situation of people's lives, which are being torn apart by the choices and decisions that we make in going away from God. But it's important not to lose sight of the fact that what the Bible's saying about this is about the bad news is said in another context. Even though we need to be honest about what's going on to face up to God's anger over us and our sin, we also shouldn't think that God's anger is totally removed from His love. There's a play on words at the beginning of this section with what goes before and it's really important to see it Paul says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven but he's just been speaking about how God's righteousness God's plan of salvation in Jesus has also been revealed at the same time as God's wrath is being revealed from heaven so too is God's good news in Jesus the good news that people like you and me can be reconciled to God the good news that God's just anger against us has been spent on Jesus We think of love and wrath as opposites. But to say that God is angry with us, rightly angry, is not to say that he doesn't long for us to turn and to know him through Jesus. A few weeks ago on ABC's uh, excellent documentary Ice Wars, I highly recommend it. Uh, There was a mother whose son uh, had become addicted to ice. Uh, He'd stolen $25,000 from her. He'd taken the sheets of tin off the roof to break into her house. She had to take her handbag to the toilet and to bed to stop him from stealing from her. Uh, At one point in the documentary, she speaks to the police officers uh, after he's been arrested again for drug possession after being released from prison that day. And she says, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've got to the point where I just know I can't try anymore. I can't take any more of it. To the point where I wish you'd pick him up and I wish you'd keep him there. I was so surprised today when he got out. His sister and I were praying that he wouldn't get out because we knew he wasn't going to stop. Stop. I cannot explain what it has done to our family. He cannot see that it's his problem. It's just everybody else's problem, but he is. And in the same way, we're God's children. We're made in God's image. And like that son, we've treated our father, our parent, with contempt. And yet God keeps holding out his hand to us and we keep going our own way. And God's angry with us. Like that mother was angry with her son. And yet at the same time, longing for him to return. She told the story of when he was a young boy, uh, how they were walking, walking down the street and they found money on the side of the road. And he made her walk all the way across town to hand the money in at the police station. And she said, What's happened to my child? I wish they'd take him away. I want him so much to be the boy that he was. It's the same with us and God. But God, like that mother, will reach a point where he won't put up with our addiction. A point where God will give us over to our destructive desires and our destructive lives. And the only hope for us is that we turn back to him and receive the forgiveness and the reconciliation which he offers us in Jesus. You see, apart from Jesus, you and me are like ice addicts. We're addicted to our rejection of God and to our suppression of the truth. And as far as we're concerned, God, uh, we're not the problem. But that's not actually an accurate view of reality. Like the ice addict, we can't see reality straight until we see what God has done in Jesus. And like the ice addict, we can't keep our drug and hope for a better life. The two things can't go together. We can't keep our sin and have God. In turning to God, we have to be willing to leave those things behind. But even in his anger, the Bible says, God stands with his arms open wide, willing to receive in Jesus all those who leave that behind and seek a new life and forgiveness hidden in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we only have to look ever so briefly at the news to see the tragedy of our world and the consequences of the decisions that we make as individuals, as a society. And Lord, we don't even have to look at the news, if we're honest. We just have to look at our own lives at our own hearts, the things that we do to the people that we love, the bad decisions that we make. The way that we suppress the truth about you. The way that we fail to thank you even though you've made us and you keep us alive. Father, please forgive us. Please help us to leave all those things behind and to turn to Jesus and to put our trust in him. Lord, we come not as perfect people but as people willing to leave that old way behind and as people longing to know you and to know your love in Jesus Christ. Forgive us, we pray. And make us your adopted children. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.